0: Hello and welcome
1: to episode 266 of Fintech Insider. Today we bring you the highlights from the RFI Global Banking Summit, where we're lucky enough to speak to a variety of different guests on a range of topics. First up, we spoke with Louise Beaumont, who was previously a co-chair at the Open Bank Working Group and has been heavily involved in the UK work to get banks opening up. Then we talked with Femtech legend and regular Fintech Insider guest, Gela Boskovic. Enjoy the show! So uh, we're here today at the RFI Global Banking Summit and yep. yesterday I know you were at the Open Finance Summit so
2: I was. I'm summited oh out. <laughs> I have summited.
1: Yeah. Yes, uh, open banking open banking open banking. Yeah. Uh, it's got There's a few mentions a few mentions today obviously a full day of it yesterday. Yeah. Where are we?
2: Um I think we're in the uh, fuzzy period where we have no clue. I mean, the way I look at it, you can treat this as a compliance issue and you can choose to be compliant. We call it MVC, Minimum Viable Compliance. <laughs> it's the level of compliance where you don't actually get fined, but you do manage to kill your business. So there's that choice. And then if you wanna move slightly further up, that, uh, up the rungs, you could look at repurposing your bank, uh, putting those great new customer experiences onto your old platform, your old model, your old commercial model, your old operating model. And that's really difficult and it's really expensive and it's really hard to iterate and to adapt and to evolve. You could take it a little bit further and you could say, well, I'm gonna do a bit more of something which looks like integration. I'm going to put in a new technology platform, but I'm kind of gonna hope that the operating model and commercial model hold together. But I'm gonna put in the new technology, I'm gonna put in the new customer experiences, also really expensive, takes a long time. Or you could go right the way to the end and go, you know, I'm gonna reimagine what it means to be in financial services. That means changing my customer experience, iterating and evolving it constantly. It means biting the bullet about the commercial model and understanding how I'm gonna make money in the future. It means adapting my operating model from everything from my people, my processes, and my technology. And you've got a choice about how quickly you wanna do that. If that is your end state, you could go fast. You could really go for it all in one go. Be really brave, you need your board behind you for that one. Or, like a drunk staggering from <laughs> bar to bar, you could go from compliant to repurposing to integrating to reimagining. That is an option available to you. Or, you could completely opt out of anything which looked like remaining in a, the consumer or small business world and you could say, I'm just going to do- go infrastructure. Everything I do is just going to be about the best technology, the best. Uh, API, interface layer. It's gonna be a pure technology play, a new operating model, a new way of making money. But I will be the best infrastructure bank. The outcome that I think nobody wants but people will sleepwalk into is that compliant only bank where they're going, nobody's ever gonna leave us. We know our customers aren't going to leave us. We asked them in a survey (laughs) and they said they wouldn't leave us. You know, I think that's going to be a really tricky position to be in because as a shareholder of a bank that chooses that, you are going to be looking at a high priced utility which just cut your dividend. So those are the choices I I see.
1: Do you see any organizations, obviously, you know, today it's got a mention, but do you you see any organizations that are really going for it well or, you know, I've picked one of those options Mm. or is it just still a bit? tentatively try before you buy slash um,
2: stagger
1: from bar to bar
2: <laughs> I think there are individuals in each and every bank out there that get it that understand uh, there's a different way and that uh, I think the guy from um, Tandem did it really well he said in 1998 you'd have to be really smart to figure out you were going to be disrupted now you'd have to be really stupid to think you weren't going to be disrupted so I think there are people in Places inside the banks, and in individual divisions or departments, who get it. But I think that if you look at the executive committees of most of these banks, they have—they're there because they won the wars of the past. So they own the retail proposition or they own the commercial proposition. They're not here because they're going to win the, the, the wars of the future in the boardroom. And I guess yeah?
1: one of the things I'm interested in is that that language of, of owning the customer as well, and mm. it's and it's you know, ecosystem's are a word that's thrown about but you, yeah. it's not all going to be in your interface or it's not going to all be your products. And that is the way today but it's just somebody's going to reaggregate it better, somebody's going to start providing niche products off the back of data and identity and the ability to move money, products that just aren't in the mindset or the- yeah that's why
2: i was so talking about a little bit about propositions and then coming back to the customer point i think there are three buckets of proposition that we're talking about in the open banking yeah. world the government has kindly suggested that aggregation is an option and they've also kindly suggested that payments doing it better differently is, yep. is an option i think the bucket that we should all be thinking about is the bucket called we don't know what the proposition is going to be that's the interesting bucket because you could look at aggregation and think that's like a foundation garment. You better do it well because you can build real value on it. But in and of itself, it's kind of like a, it's the gateway drug of propositions, yes. right? Um, coming back to customers and who owns them, I imagine a world, well, 20 years ago, I was talking about a world where it was no longer product push. Services would envelop me and be appropriate to me the, to the time that I wanted it. That's now kind of, kind of there in some aspects with some organization. There's been the arms race of consumer expectation. Consumers absolutely expect services to be there, preempt their thinking if they need them, uh, deliver immediately and be a great experience. So consumer uh, services have been kind of weaponized Think about your shopping experiences, think about your gambling experiences, think about your dating experiences, right? It's, it's I'm your, married. I don't, <laughs> oh, that is your get out of jail card. It's an enveloping experience, except when you talk about financial services. So my expectations are here and my experience is here. That gap will close. And it's simply a question of, for, for banks, you remember they went from being church spire banks, you know, what I can see from the summit of the, the spire of the nearest church is my territory to mass global brands with, opera, with you know factory processes. so they have invested heavily, heavily heavily in brand. and this isn't a world where brand alone can do it for you. Experience and then expectation fueled by good experience is fundamentally important and If you're investing in something called brand and your customers are buying something different, there's going to need to be a readjustment.
1: I think one other thing I am interested in, and that's not had much coverage, but there's lots of talk about, um, you know, regulated entities that are gonna control data, regulated entities that are gonna be able to move money, but what about me as an individual? Can I access my own API? Can I build things with my own API? Oh, you are. Because I'm, I'm intrigued about what the individual tinkerers might do people who can code or you know uh, what would artists build because at the moment it's a lot of utilitarian interfaces pie charts bar graphs spreadsheets fine for a certain group of people who love that but what are the you know i want i just want some artistry and some difference in banking and that's what i'm intrigued about. but it feels like the individual apis are a bit it's just—it's not really clear. Are they going to exist? Am I going to be able to build something?
2: So I love the hyper consumer view there that says that what am I? What am I as an artistic geek going to be doing with my personal API? And I think that takes us back to the conversation that we had earlier in the day in the room, which was around who owns my identity? Do I own my identity? In which case, do I do it myself, or do I federate it via an agent? How do I manage that? And how do I? choose what i want to get access to and i think you're thinking at the hyper personalized level because you're you know ahead of the curve the vast bulk of people which is the bigger you are the more you worry about the the mass adoption piece so far away from that they you would frighten them but you should go along. that's what, to that's what we hackathon. want
1: to do at 11fs we want to frighten banks yeah there you go
2: there you go. that is that's the uh, that's the thing you should run your own hackathon
1: well hackathons are good for some things not for so much for others but yes thank you very much louise
2: thank
3: you and i think conferences do have that it's a platform for the unorthodox to have stage time and air time yeah. in a very public forum with people who are not necessarily like mind actually presented with the argument the rational argument the discussion so i think yeah communication is the only way ideas change anyway right we start to normalize what we talk about we start to normalize what then becomes familiar so the more we hear about open banking being actually more of a revenue driver instead of a threat people start to shift their perspective on how they think about that and then they start to consider what that really could mean rather than what they immediately see it as, as a threat to their current position or the, the current banks. So, yeah, conferences can actually do it in the sense that we start to talk about the ideas that will change. Plant the ideas. Yeah, it plants the ideas. It makes it more acceptable to talk about them. It actually fosters discussion. You have a lot of debate around it. You have people naysaying, you have those that are cheerleading. But over time, it becomes an acceptable topic to then talk about and really kind of dig into. So I think that's why gatherings actually make more sense, is because it's the communication aspect of it. I
1: guess you know, if, if regular conference goers, you know, we might get worn down. We might be hearing the same things, but it's, it's banking. These ideas do take a long time to to to, to seed and to seed right? and germinate. So yeah. over and over and over again is is good as it as it ages. Takes time to get tracks in the mind? Well,
3: it's like that, the adoption cycle, like the early adopters versus the laggards, right? It's a it's a cycle. Yeah. I mean, I was yesterday at uh, another conference talking about rethinking money movement, and I am literally in a room full of 300 bankers, 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 and we're talking very extraordinarily conservative bankers, and they decide to throw this thing on stage. And this thing gets up and says, well. Why don't you start looking at different perspectives, emerging markets, e-commerce giants, people that are completely outside of what we consider traditional banking, for inspiration, i.e. M-Pesa, Vodafone, well, and the Kenyan government now just issued bonds on the blockchain. Yep. I mean, that was this week. It was, what, Wednesday or Tuesday they announced it. Look at emerging markets, and then look at, you know, Alipay, net Financial, and, uh, and WeChat, and the news that we discussed a couple weeks ago about that massive investment, and, and then user adoption. Well, they've also got a way of marrying the commercial and the social and payments and financial just beautifully in one side. We've
1: not not really seen that outside of China yet. We've got the tech giants, you know, the big West Coast tech giants, but they've not
3: They've not merged really it all married. together, right? That's so why don't we take example of places that don't have these infrastructure rails that are permanent or that they're so attached to, the traditions. And then I was talking a little bit more about, yes, we'll go more mobile first, but let's also talk about wearables. Let's talk about tokenization. Let's talk about the fact that tokens actually free up the way you can start to pay and what you can plant. You, know, you can plant a token in so many different hardware devices. You can actually plant a token on a temporary tattoo. You can actually plan a token in an underskin. There's an underskin project about temporary tattoos. Are you going to get one? I, I kind of publicly committed that I would, so <laughs> yeah, why not, right? Um, but this fact that, you know, yeah, I want to swipe with my wrist. In fact, we'd just seen a little presentation from Danske Bank's Mobile Pay about uh, it was really quite clever commercial with a young girl on a on a skateboard going through a shop and then she can just click on her mobile page she passes the point-of-sale terminal and smooths on out and uh, pretty clever and that's awesome but you know what why do I have to to press a button when I can just swipe my wrist give me a barcode I'm a product anyway right tattoos tattoos but temporary tattoos and the fact that some people were just incredibly uncomfortable with the notion and hadn't well, even heard of it. And I've been talking about temporary tattoos, pay, malpayment tattoos for about a year now.
1: I, I, can, I can see why that's a problem. You know, these mobile devices, they are, you know, we are becoming part cyborg. So why actual that implantation into the body, so even if a tattoo, which is obviously semi-permanent, is a...
3: I'm like, just inject me with some white barcode ink, call it done, it's discreet, I'm out.
1: And then there's the whole you know, privacy concerns, You know, what this knows slash actually tying it to tying. your bodies.
3: But you know, looking at the biometrics part too, right? So there are <laughs> fundamental existential questions that have to be answered. But at the end of the day, standing in that room talking to people about what others are really conceiving of possibilities that are not attached to these traditional bank rails, that are not attached to the traditional business models that we assume Are going to be in perpetuity.
1: So, uh, you know, our bank's going to open up from not just a technical point of view, but also a a cultural slash a mind point of view to say, well, yeah, we have always lent money or, you know, assessed risk, but
3: what if it's a a different business model, model, right? So, tech evolves, it evolves our business models for us, or it allows us to speed up the evolution of business models. And that's the one thing that I think is really uncomfortable for a lot of people. So if we're going back to this notion of, do conferences change banking? Conferences change ideas, conferences change perceptions, and conferences change what can be considered normalized or what can even be possible. And I think having really odd ideas being thrown at an audience to digest, to mull over, and then to come back and talk again about, in a few months or at a different venue, where you're getting these different perspectives I think that's probably where the benefit comes from is you're bringing diverse perspectives into a single room and asking people to really discuss that so yes it can transform because we have to actually the people have to transform first before the banking industry transforms and the way we transform is by opening up our understanding or our willingness to entertain different ideas and then we evolve and we change and so i think yeah it's kind of (laughs) because we're human and we're so incredibly stubborn and fallible this might be the starting point and so Maybe conferences just in general don't change the world, but they actually do start to transform the people that are part of that community.
1: So uh, Simon Taylor is hosting a panel later on, mm. uh, on Open Banking. Mm-hmm. Any pointed questions that you'd like to put to that panel? Megan, Ed, etc.
3: See, the scary thing is I completely oh, understand nice why. It's pretty yeah, nice. I think actually the question would be more of a forecasting kind of a crystal ball thing is why can't we turn it over to the business side of banking to drag us into open banking or to push us into open banking rather than leaving it to the regulators to nudge us slash encourage us slash <laughs> mandate that we comply to that? And why is the business side of banking so hesitant to do it when actually the money is being made in data and not in necessarily services? Uh, I
1: think that's probably the answer, isn't okay. it? <laughs> the, the thing is they've, they've had the dates and mm-hmm. they've en- enjoyed that kind of...
3: Putting their arms yeah. around of it,
1: and now the regulations say, no open access. Like GDPR coming down the line.
3: Yeah, uh, there's a
1: whole, you know, the, the openness trends kind of maybe starts with PSD two, but it's it's
3: just the beginning. So the, yeah, they they yeah. they had the chance, but it was they didn't do it. Why didn't they? But I mean, the thing is, when you start looking at the model of what's coming, it's not going to be around services. It's going to be around. I actually kind of think banking in the future is going to be the vault of identity, it will be about identity more than anything else. It won't be about services or products, it will be about permissions, and permissions are attached to identity. So when you talk about corporate identity, or you talk about individual identity. That's the more interesting question. And that's where the data comes in, and that's where the monetization of data actually lies, is in understanding identity and permissions, and that's where banks can actually make a return. It's a big
1: change, isn't it? Identity as a business, as a service, mm-hmm. from both a technical point of view, cultural point of view, and a business model point of view—huge change. APIs are, are the same. It's, it, mm-hmm. it, it kind of flips flips the world on its head. So I think it's the the banks that can think upside down, should we say? They're going to get the they really going to get the traction there, but yeah, it's going to be a long, long and road.
3: Therein lies maybe therein lies the challenge, and actually the gauntlet should be thrown of the bank that can completely abandon tradition she'll win, they'll make it up the mountain, everyone else will be stuck at base camp in Everest when you're at the peak, right? And maybe that's, maybe that's the crystal ball aspect, but when the hell are banks actually gonna get on, embrace it and embrace the fact that it's an opportunity, an amazing opportunity for change, and that the early adopters will be the winners and those that are late to the game won't exist.
1: So when, when the hell will banks embrace the open? That's, yeah. That's it.
3: Yeah, that, maybe that is the question. It took forever to get there, but I told you this usually oh, happens good. with me. <laughs> yeah, so Simon, Megan, Ed. When we'll see, this are, out, we'll find out. <laughs> ask them. Thank you. Thanks. Hello,
1: I'm here with the VP of Digital Solutions from Strands Labs, uh, Luis Rodriguez. How are you doing? Very well, thank you, Adam. Uh Thanks for talking to us. Awesome. Uh, Strands Labs, just tell us a little bit about what that is and where it came about.
4: Strongest is a company that was created in 2004 by a couple of PhDs in artificial intelligence and uh, they created algorithms and patents that they were later sold to Apple. And uh, since 2008 we pivoted to the financial services industry. We worked with BBA, launching the first modern PFM in Europe in 2008, and since then we are trying to help banks uh, become digital and uh, transform digitally their experience with customers.
1: So anything interesting you guys are working on at the moment you can talk about?
4: Uh, A lot of the focus uh, we're putting on is in uh, machine learning, we're going back to the origins of the company, because we think uh, banks need to transform the way they interact with the customers, moving from products to people, from people to products, meaning that they need to understand the customers, get insights about them, uh, knowing them, help them, and then eventually monetize them and getting better returns.
1: And I guess uh, Open Banking is coming in Europe, PSD2. Will that have some interesting impacts on strands
4: yeah we we, we see that as a critical component uh, not just uh, in europe but worldwide i think the open banking is a is a trend that will eventually will eat the financial service world and i think the banks need to prepare not just to you know meet the regulation but also to understand how they are going to use that uh, user experience how they're going to enhance the you know the the data that they will gather uh, and how to help the customer in their journeys again focusing very much on. Pushing your motto, like moving from one percent uh, a banking is one percent done digital banking, to actually hundred percent done, and that means helping people uh, in their in their personal needs, not just uh, moving money or uh, uh, securities money, but to experiences. And finally, I guess
1: uh, the RFI conference today. Anything you're looking forward to? Anything you've seen already that's?
4: Yeah, it was, I was very interested about the, the digital identity. I think that's one of the key nuts to crack in the, in the, in the 21st century for digital banking. And uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, the 11FS uh, event later. And I was also very interested to understand how DBS was uh, doing the transformation. I, I like the logo of the, of the Jurassic Bank uh, becoming a, a wolf in, in the 21st century. I think We've certainly done similar slides in the past too. Indeed, yeah, it's uh, very much a... Uh, an interesting evolutionary challenge, we say. Yeah. I, I was, one of the key questions I had for that presentation was uh, how are they going to keep uh, not becoming a legacy system in the future? I think that is also, you know, we talk about new core banking systems today and uh, Sterling Bank, etc. This experience is um, creating new uh, uh, core banking ecosystems. How do I actually manage to, in a few years' time, not become also a legacy? That would be interesting to know. We'll see. Thanks very much for talking to us. Pleasure. Nox, thanks for joining us straight off stage. Thanks very
1: much.
5: Great to see you. Yeah.
1: Um, so I guess, uh, can you give a, a little snippet of what you talked about and get a few so highlights? The main,
5: the main thing that I was trying to get across uh, to my, my, my banking audience was uh, how they should be thinking about generating value for their customers rather than generating value for themselves. So uh, one of the things at the core of uh, sort of Tandem's belief system is that we're here to deliver to maximize customer lifetime benefit. So uh, Capital One was awesome at maximizing net present value of future cash flows off their customer base for Capital One. Uh, They were data experts and amazing at generating that value, but unfortunately, we're very focused on the value for for them. Uh, We believe that by putting customer lifetime benefit first, uh, you can actually drive uh, better outcomes for your customers. You can stop worrying so much about uh, your origination costs because if you're actually generating benefit for your customers, you're going to have to pay an awful lot less uh, to acquire them in the market. And at the end of the day, um, you're going to build a business that customers that trust. Not trust in the way that you're not going to lose my money because you've got nice marble columns uh, outside your building, but uh, trust in the way that you're actually going to do the right thing for me. And that trust, I think, has really been lost through the scandals and the financial crisis. And I think the banks are suffering from not a trust in losing my money deficit, but a trust in doing the right thing by me deficit. And Tandem's here to address that balance. So, and
1: you're taking a, a community-based you know, approach to trust through your co-founder program. How's that going?
5: Yes, yeah, super well. I mean, we've been, co-founders was a, um, an idea that we had because PRA and the FDA wouldn't let us distribute all our products to uh, the general public, uh, but we're happy for us to think about delivering that to a, to a closer shareholder group. Uh, so we invited our customers to come in and become shareholders, become founders of the bank, help us actually design uh, the products and services that they need and not the ones that necessarily uh, we thought would uh, benefit us most out of the gate, because I think that line of Competitive thinking has been very, very well travelled. And is the
1: co-founders program open for a little bit longer? Is it? Yeah, so we've actually
5: eight days left to go. So that's Uh, what date is that? uh, That's next week, Friday. Uh, We're closing the program forever. So the nineteenth of uh, of May is the is the last day we're gonna um, we're gonna accept co-founders on the program. So. Anybody wants to join in, you need to go out and find yourself a referral code from either one of our existing co-founders, and then you will have uh, not only awesome products and services and you get preferential access to everything we're doing, but also the opportunity. And I was sitting down at breakfast with a group of our co-founders this morning who were talking to us about how we can improve the app, what pricing should be on our products, how we should think about actually improving their lives, uh, because that's the focus of what we're doing. Great stuff, uh, gearing up for launch this year. Yeah, we're launching shortly after we uh, close the co-founder program. You'll soon be able to get our app in the, uh, in the App Store and, uh, and Google Play Store, um, uh, and we'll be launching uh, credit cards uh, shortly after that. And if you sign up as a co-founder, you get a special co-founder credit card, oh, wow. uh, which means you can actually wander around to your friends. And if you're into that type of thing, say, look, I co-founded a bank. I'm a tandem <laughs> co-founder uh, and therefore… Uh, and you at 11FS, this- there's a
1: lot of people who keep wandering around saying, yeah, I co-founded a bank. So, yeah, yeah. it would be good to have one of those. Uh, exactly,
5: exactly, <laughs> exactly. At 11FS, I think it would go down <laughs> extremely well and you even get a bit of co-founder art on there that we did connecting the data of our customers uh, with uh, the help of a German tape art collective called Tape That, uh, who helped us to design this awesome, this awesome card. Thanks very much. Super cool. Uh, All the best. Great to see you. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers.
1: Coming up in the second half of the show, Simon Taylor takes the reins as he chats with Mike Kelly, the founder of Curl. But first, a quick message from our sponsors. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical Mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach Critical Mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won reader's choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos us now. We make the money go round.
6: Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today.
7: So yeah, so I'm, I'm Mike, um, I'm the founder of Curl. Uh, Curl is a completely new method of payment to replace bank cards that works in store, online and between friends. Yeah,
8: oh, very, very handy. So like this API thing, right? I, I hear lots of talk conferences, I hear lots of regulators talking about it. And like, I've, I've been saying for some time, and I don't know if you feel the same, that like, it just feels as if the whole thing is not gonna happen from the big banks. Like it's gonna come from somewhere else. And why do you think that is? Like, have you given up on the big banks or? Uh,
7: I wouldn't say we've given up on them. I think it's just we don't spend too much energy uh, sort of uh, worrying Wait, about whether or not they're gonna do it or not. So yeah. we built our business around hedging against them actually not delivering on APIs in time frame that would work for us. And instead we're working with the banks that are progressive, the banks that are sort of fully engaging in open APIs, regardless of the regulatory stuff. Uh, and we're sort of uh, waiting for the other banks to catch up. Yeah, there's some out there,
8: right? I mean, there's some that are, like, actually pretty interesting, especially some of the small ones. Um, yep. You can really see that they, they get it. But And I guess what you were saying about the regulator thing, like, how many people who work for a regulator have ever, like done an API call in their lives for, for any sort of purpose.
7: Absolutely, and the standards bodies as well, I don't think the standards bodies involve enough of the end users, so they're not being collaborative enough, they're not talking to companies like like us about the use cases that we're actually working on, and the things we're actively doing in market with the existing banks that are doing API stuff. So, so, so this, there's a little bit of a friction at the moment where I'm trying not to invest too much time in the regulatory stuff because it's a massive time sink, but I still want them to be aware of what's actually happening in market. Yeah, and and what is happening in market then? Uh, So what's happening in market is that there's a small, there's a very small handful of challenger banks that are actively working on API programs, and the majority of the larger banks are quite cagey about their about their API activity let's put it that way yeah but what, what do you think is behind that caginess? is it just a fear or is it like a uh, I, I think it is partly fear I think it's partly they're still trying to learn about api's internally in the organization I think apis are a new thing in the tech world I mean api's have really only really been around as a sort of mainstream thing for, for ten years cloud computing's not a you know it's, it's not a, an old thing and I think banks are, are quite rightly kind of have some trepidation about the space but I, I think Hopefully, over the course of the next 12, 18 months, as the rubber starts to hit the road, they're gonna to have to figure it out sooner yeah, rather I mean, than doing later. Doing
8: something new isn't inherently risky if you're doing something well. But yes. doing something well when you don't know what it is, is hard, so like where do you get the talent and how do you get that talent to wanna to work for you? It's, uh... That's
7: a great question. I mean, I think one of the observations I'd make uh, is that the banks that are gonna get this right are gonna to have to look at this as a product first problem and not That's as a technology true. problem. So I think they really need strong product ownership around their API initiatives, so that ultimately it's use case driven and not just seen as a, oh, we need to hire a bunch of techies to build uh, So this you mean thing. it's
8: not just a tick box process so that I make the regulator get off my back?
7: <laughs> yeah, not, but even if they don't see it as that, they also don't just see it as some box that gets chucked into the kind of technology uh, the, the, the technology part, it because, it. because ultimately it's a channel and you can see it from a product perspective. You can see it as a way to, acquire new customers as a way to retain existing customers. You know, there's there's a way to look at it from a sort of complete end-to-end. I got to say, I've talked to Especially. some banks who are seeing it that way,
8: like big banks. Yeah. And, and to their credit, they they're sort of asking 11FS about like, okay, we think there are these products. Do you know there are any others? How do we how do we make this stable? How do we make it secure? How do we make sure that developers like this thing? And that, to me, is an interesting mindset change because you're not necessarily just selling to end customers anymore. You have a lot of responsibilities to the end customer. you are got to make sure that their data is safe, that they're looked after, and you've got to make sure that they're educated and aware of what's going on. But at the same time, now you've got this entirely new character the developer and yep. what's their experience like exactly. are they going to like your apis what happens if something goes wrong are they going to take yep. a word document and get into a queue to- but what's
7: what's the process that those banks use internally in order to make sure that they're solving those problems and i think you know the the key is to hire the right people and have the right processes i think Having the right product people there is going to make sure that they, they approach it in the right Easier way. Easier said than done. Like product people are pretty hard to find. Good ones, aren't they? <laughs> Gold dust. Alrighty, man. Well, it's great to have you on FinTech Insider. Where can people find out more about what you do? Uh, paywithcurl.com. So if you want to know about the future of payments and, um, uh, and what's going on with uh, bank APIs and the real business of bank APIs, which is payments, uh, come and have a look. That was awesome, man. Well, thank you. Uh, so I'm here with Charles, the CEO
6: of RFI. Can you? tell me a little bit about who RFI are and what you do? And... Sure, so we're a, a global business intelligence provider um, focused exclusively on financial services. We operate in about 44 markets globally and at, at the heart of what we do is we, we interview 500,000 consumers a year and 100,000 corporates uh, about banking, the future of banking and then obviously digital banking uh, which is uh, uh, the, the number one topic at, at the moment.
8: Absolutely. Um, We hear that a lot at 11FS as well, but we don't speak to nearly as many people as you do. So that's that's very impressive. So you gave a keynote speech earlier today here at the RFI conference and uh, there's some really interesting nuggets in there and bits of research that you found. What are your key takeaways? What are your key points for for people who are interested in fintech and digital banking and digital transformation?
6: Yeah, so there's some real key differences with the UK market. So we spoke to uh, 10,000 consumers across 10 markets about fintech, appetite for fintech, mobile wallets, uh, you know, etc. Um, and one of the first things that jumps out is obviously you'd expect China and India, uh, given uh, how those markets are evolving, that consumers in those markets would be most comfortable uh, with digital learning products. But what was interesting was that the UK was third, just behind China and India. So of all the other markets, the UK had the largest number of consumers uh, comfortable with digital learning products and then even more interestingly, we've, we've trended it over the last 12 months. So the UK was the only market 12 months ago where, where we split things into generations, awful terminology, but where Generation X uh, was actually ahead of millennials in comfort with digital learning providers. It's the only market we see that globally. That's still the case 12 months later. But what's really interesting is in most developed markets, Australia, the US, Canada, you get you know millennials are this comfortable and then a little bit lower are Generation X and a little bit lower are baby boomers. Um, in the UK. it's pretty much even across the segments. In the last 12 months, each of those segments has increased about 20% in their comfort up to about 80%. So that's really interesting if you're, if you're, de- if you're developing a, a value proposition for consumers. Everyone thinks so it's you know, digital only or it's a FinTech, to target millennials. Well, if you're, if you're in banking, millennials want their first credit card, they want their first personal loan, they want a car loan, they want maybe a mortgage. Generation X want wealth and investments and baby boomers want retirement. Um, so, you, you've got to tailor the proposition to make sure that you're targeting the right people. That's a
8: really interesting point because uh, post-Brexit, everybody's talking about how uh, London's doomed, the UK is doomed, and fintech should go somewhere else if you want to start. But actually, if you've got a position where, um, I mean, Innovate Finance always talk about how uh, the regulation advantage of the UK is pretty strong. but unlike Singapore that has a regulation advantage, you've actually got a much bigger customer base here in the exactly, UK. Yeah. You've you kind of got that Goldilocks of not too big, not too small, just the right size of regulator, just the right amount of regulation, kind of lightweight um, process, but I wasn't aware of just how uh, accepting the demographics were. That's, that's a really cool point.
6: Yeah, and the usage is going through the roof as well. So we tracked fintech usage across yeah. 10 markets this time last year and then we just came out of the field a couple of weeks ago. So we've seen fintech usage just I mean, it's coming off a low base, so you're always going to have hugely exponential growth. But it's gone from in the UK one percent to twelve percent in twelve months. Really? Um, and that's yeah, that's and that's that kind of enormous jump is consistent with most markets. Obviously, China and India are way ahead. Yeah, cool. um, but that that's that's uh, that's a huge jump in just twelve months, particularly considering the last time we did the survey was just before Brexit. so yeah, Well, absolutely. So if that hasn't had any impact whatsoever from a usage point of view. The, the interesting thing, though, is that the usage is being driven by millennials, even though we know the Generation X say they've got a greater appetite. So is that the products? Is it the marketing? Is it
8: the proposition generally? Like are you targeting, if you're out there building digital propositions, are you just assuming that millennials are your only buyers and actually, actually there's a whole the Gen X And then also, but where are you, what sort of sub-segments of FinTech are you seeing? Because at 11FS, we see a lot more coming into the small business space. Like right? small business is really hot at the moment. RegTech is really hot at the moment. Um, obviously um, machine learning AI and that whole space is really hot. Um, what are you seeing?
6: Like, what are what you things you know when you've gone from one percent to twelve percent? What's that growth been really in? So, I mean, regtech is obviously very hot. Um, SME is just waiting to be disrupted. I mean, you've got the fundamental challenge, uh, particularly with SMEs, um, which are generally pretty fast growing. That if you go to a traditional bank and say you want to borrow um, some money, well, what's your EBITDA? Uh, can we see some profit for the last quarter? If you're running a fast-growing business, you don't want to have any profit for the last quarter because all that means is you haven't reinvested it haven't in order to fuel the growth. So literally the business model of a fast-growing SME is diametrically opposed to how banks currently assess you as risk and then lend money to you. So if you can take transactional data uh, and use that to, to create a credit score and then, and then lend to small businesses, uh, particularly micro-businesses, single traders, then there's, there's 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 a huge opportunity. It's, there. A, it's a great point. There's there's all this talk of the funding
8: gap for small businesses yeah. and micro enterprises in the UK, and then actually the the willingness to recognise that issue is phenomenal. Everybody gets it, but the willingness to actually change your processes to be able to provide liquidity into those markets is just missing. And so there's a huge opportunity when people aren't serving a market for a new type of player to come and serve that market. It's uh, exactly, yeah. interesting. We'll probably see more of that. I suspect, I suspect so. Yeah. Really cool. And is
6: there any other key observations that you've got? Any, anything um... really around trust? I think trust is uh, is a big one. So, I think it was a couple of years ago. There's some research done in the US that got global headlines. 75 percent of millennials would trust Facebook, Google, and Amazon to do their banking. And trust is a bit of a you know, motherhood statement. And when you break it down again, say okay, so rather than just saying I trust you, you know, do you trust this institution to to hold your personal financial information and maintain it securely? Then we saw some differences and you saw that the banks were number one, then government agencies and then technology providers. What's happened in the last 12 months is trust overall has slightly increased, marginally for banks but really sig- significantly for technology companies and especially amongst millennials. So when you look at the trust, and you know trust is the number one driver of choice when it comes to banking products, when you look at the trust gap between uh, banks and technology companies for millennials, that's diminished to about six or seven percent, which is scary if I'm in a bank because my whole thing is, well, I've got trust and you've got that exclusive asset. The value of that exclusive asset to a bank is rapidly diminishing as trust in technologies comes comes And
8: If I'm a bank and I'm looking at China and India where I'm seeing the fintech, especially in China with uh, Tencent and Alipay and so on being like really significant banking players, taking, you know, moving double digit percentages of the market, sometimes 40, 50% of the payments market. I mean, that is huge. If that happened in Europe, if that happened in the USA, you would see whole scale industry change, banks being closed, sold off, fire sold. And, and I think that change in trust is a real canary in the coal mine for, for what Change in coming. trust
6: is a canary in the coal mine and also the fundamental of design. What Alipay and Tencent with WeChat have managed to do is effectively say, you know, with banking we had, we had the branch, then we had the call center, then we had the, the website, then the mobile phone, then the app on the mobile phone, but you still need to go to the banking app on your mobile phone. You still have to go to complete banking. Yeah, you've got to you go to that. Whereas what WeChat have done is they've basically gone, okay, so if we, if we started fresh with all the advantage we have with technology these days, what would we do? We would, we would bring the customer, bring the customer in and bring them into the bank and have, and have the bank involved as part of the conversation. So it's so seamless that you don't even realize you're doing banking, you're just, you're just meeting needs. And that's what they've done with WeChat, that's what they've done with Alipay. Um, and you know, Alipay have just launched in Hong Kong six months ago and you know, China are the big innovator and Jack Ma wants one in four people on the planet to use Alipay, that's two billion people. In eight years, I think he set his goal. So, a moonshot, but a terrifying moonshot. They've gone into Hong Kong, where you've got Octopus, that most of the eighty-five percent of the market use for travel and low cash payments, um, low value payments. You've got Ali, uh, Android Pay, you've got Apple Pay, you've got Samsung Pay, and they've been there for about a year, year and a half, fighting for market share. Ali Pay have come in six months ago and have got three times the market share in six months that Apple Pay. Uh, and Android Pay have, and that's the danger. That's the thing. Everybody's saying, oh, Chinese
8: companies can't get out of China. Actually, look, locally; they they have and they are. And and this is coming. And I think uh, amongst the executive class, this is now becoming the beginnings of conversation. But what would your advice be to executives based on what you see from a research perspective? If I'm in a large bank or even if I'm in a fintech, where are my opportunities and where are my threats?
6: I think that you've got to work on really collaboration. which is more challenging than it sounds, just saying it as a works you've got two fundamentally different cultures. But you know, fintechs are fantastic at driving a fast pace, great customer experience, using analysis uh, to create real-time solutions. Um, but at the moment, although it is diminishing, banks have the trust, they have the security, they have the enormous compliance and regulatory issues dealt with. And those, those are not to be underestimated, they are huge. As, okay. as anyone who says, sets up, you know, I think Mark Mullen and Ricky, uh, uh, from Tandon, both said, you know, running a bank is a lot different to running a fintech, because you know you have to look after people's money. And on that point, running a bank is
8: different to running a fintech. Do you think we've evolved in terms of, you know, with the new generation of challenger banks? Is there a difference between them and the uh, like the, the first generation we saw uh, people uh, do sort of uh, skins effectively over the top of other banks?
6: Yeah, I mean. Obviously, you need to go through several generations before you're probably going to find something that ultimately evolves in a sustainable manner. I'm not entirely convinced of the sustainability of the, the sort of second phase, which we're in at the moment. So, we saw moving with the first phase uh, and simple, you know, moving now is effectively uh, a great customer experience, money management tool that's doing great things with TD in Canada, uh, with Westpac in New Zealand, partnering with banks to get that scale, to get that infrastructure, to, to fuel that growth. Um, I think it's going to be really hard, particularly in the developed markets, where the banks have such a great ability to defend their customer base and where there aren't the serious cracks. China, you've got 250 million people joining the emerging middle class in the next three years. That's the population of the UK every year for five years. So there's a huge opportunity to go in and steal market share. You don't have the same opportunity here. So it does need to be, I think, I think a fintech that's not looking to partner with a bank or a large technology player. Is setting itself a, a very hard task. What fintechs can do that banks can't do, banks have to, they have to be all things for everyone, particularly with things like RegTeching, If you can create a great solution for digital onboarding, if you can create a great solution for sending an encrypted text to your banker and your banker being allowed to take action based on that encrypted text, which some fintechs are doing now, that's, that's solving a single point of pain. And the bank will willingly go thank you that's really going to help me improve my customer experience let's work together
8: it was frankie woodhead at barclays on the previous episode of fintech insider said that uh, the uh, un chf and um, a lot of the aid agencies hand out uh, 70 paracetamol for every one vitamin and actually this is the the fintech 2.0 argument that comes from the oliver wyman santander paper from about a year and a half ago that says if you as a bank have these problems that are more like an arms race, that are uh, cybersecurity, that are fraud, that are these things where you have to be good at them, but actually there are specialists would be even better. Why not buy from the small, nimble, agile, specialist, best in the world company, rather than trying to do it all yourself? Which begs the question, what should banks be doing and what what shouldn't be banks doing? But uh, I'm afraid we're low on time, Charlie. Thank you so much for being with us on FinTech Insider. Thanks for having me. Great. So I'm here with Jesse Waters, who is from the World Economic Forum. And Jesse, you've been interested in an advocate and working with the World Economic Forum on the subject of blockchain for a number of years now. Could you tell us a little bit about the work you do there and, and, and what it is you're up to?
0: Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, the World Economic Forum is really interested in what our founder calls the fourth industrial revolution. And that is this notion that there are. A, whole range of technologies today that are transforming all aspects of society. Uh, and our view is that potentially one of those technologies is this thing that we call the, the blockchain. Specifically, I work within the realm of financial services where there's obviously an enormous interest in how blockchain could be used to create new infrastructure, if you will, for uh, both interbank interactions but also uh, bank-to-consumer interactions. Very,
8: very cool. Like, If it's part of the fourth industrial revolution, uh, then we're really in something uh, quite spectacular. And actually we, we find ourselves in this transformational phase. Can you tell me uh, a little bit about some of the early beginnings you're seeing? Like any, any projects or any, anything you've got going on where people are starting to, to do
0: stuff with, with the subject? I mean, certainly. So, I mean, I think if we look at the industry right now, One of the most interesting positions from my mind is the role that existing industry utilities are playing in trying to drive out uh, new blockchain solutions. So uh, I think it's interesting for for a couple of reasons. Two or three years ago, you would have heard somebody say, well, blockchain, what's that going to mean for uh, a settlement utility like the DTCC? Uh, Is it going to mean that they're no longer going to be relevant? And in fact, what's turning out to be the case is that DTCC is becoming instrumental in driving experimentation in blockchain. And I think that if we ask ourselves why that is, it's foundationally about relationships and collaboration. Blockchain provides a lot of interesting technological efficiencies, it adds new capabilities, but in order to actually execute on that, you need to get all the requisite parties to the table and you need to get them to agree on how they're going to use the technology. And that's an art in itself, right? How do you get all the right people to the table? and How do you get them to agree to
8: anything? Hey, I don't know if you can agree what you're going to order for takeout, never mind what the future of financial markets and trillions of dollars is going to look like.
0: Absolutely. And I think one of the one of the troubles that people sometimes have when they think about blockchain is that they can imagine that blockchain helps you solve that collaboration problem. And actually, it, it, it doesn't. You really need to get to the collaboration first before you can really start building production level infrastructure.
8: It's interesting though, that then you've got the alternative coming from the open source space, where in fact they're saying, well, actually let's not collaborate. Let's just develop the software in one particular direction and you guys can choose to use it or not, but it's gonna work like it works and you kind of got no choice. Are you seeing like, the mindset shifting about the open source space a little bit more? Is it just stuff inside those closed groups that's that's really taking off or are you seeing stuff outside and people's minds opening a little?
0: Well, I guess I'd look at it on the basis of two axes. One of those is sort of closed groups versus open sourced. And I think there's a sense in which uh, existing consortiums can leverage both of those things. You might choose that you want to build something uh, that's very fit for purpose for you, but I think. At the same time if we look at things like the ethereum enterprise community that's recently been created it seems to be focused on taking an open source community and making it more accessible to um, incumbent needs if you will like caffeine free and diet (laughs) (laughs) but i think there's another dimension that we can look at as well and that is the the sort of continuous versus the disruptive innovation, if you will. And that's to say that uh, lots of settlement authorities, to continue on that example, are looking to build their next generation of technology. But you also have people doing, frankly, uh, more unorthodox things. I think a great example of this is, uh, is Mellonport in Zurich, who are basically looking to build from the ground up an investment management facility in Ethereum that would basically serve both as a fund manager via smart contract and uh, as a custodian by having the assets tokenized on the blockchain. Interesting. That's a radically different vision of the financial system. It has interesting opportunities and risks associated with it. And I think increasingly we might see those sort of um, greenfield, totally new, totally disruptive innovations clashing with the incumbents' innovations, and you'll see kind of a competition of, do these new functionalities, these exciting uh, new ideas, provide sufficient value for people to defect away from existing relationships and communities. So
8: to me, it's like the the Prius versus the Tesla, right? So <laughs> you've got the Prius, which is a valid thing that has done well. It's an old company that's innovated gradually, gradually, gradually towards uh, the electric vehicle. And then you've got the completely different end of the spectrum where you've got, hey, we're just going to come in and we're going to build an electric car and we're going to raise a load of debt and, and uh, venture and we're going to try and get there. And actually at the end of it there's probably some winners and some losers but some of the people will be incumbents and some of the people will be entirely new that's a, a really interesting
0: perspective i think it's uh, yeah and i think it's too early to call right now and i think it'll probably be different across different asset classes but one thing that i think might be instructive from what we've seen in fintech so far is that if we think about Uh, where fintechs and incumbents have both sort of worked together and clashed over the last few years, an interesting thing has happened. Fintechs I think have absolutely seized the initiative. They are defining the the direction and the tempo of innovation in financial services right now. But the only areas in which those fintechs seem to have actually developed into the dominant monoline player. Are either in areas where there was no pre-existing product, or where there um, was such an enormous delta that they were able to rapidly carve out really strong adoption. And so I think if we think about blockchain in capital markets, we might see a similar thing there: that the incumbents might be advantaged in the areas that they already occupy, but there might be as yet unimagined products and services, where new entrants are able to really establish themselves as the dominant players. It's all
8: about opportunity cost right now. If somebody comes along and builds a market that's small today, you're gonna say, hey, that's too small, I'm not interested. But if that's gonna be huge in 10 years and you're not interested now, then where are you leaving yourself? Jesse, thank you so much for being on FinTech Insider. Thank you. Great, so I'm here with Jarek, who's from mBank. Jarek, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at mBank?
9: Actually, I am very much excited because I have brand new jobs. I spent in mBank almost 10 years, first running our digital retail part, then running our IT and operation, and right now, uh, actually, I'm running our new, completely new idea and venture, which is venture capital that we call smart money because we do not offer only money, but we also offer a first phase of acceleration. So getting on board into ecosystem of mBank, being like one of the largest bank in Poland and Czech, and testing your products before we really go to the big community of the bankers and try to cooperate with them.
8: That's very cool. So if I'm a fintech company, <laughs> mm-hmm. I could work with you and get access to customers yes. long before I get
9: anywhere else. And you start actually in the environment which of course, on one hand, it's much more friendly and much more innovative than, I would say, average bank, but still regulated, and no, m is still a bank, so, so it's not like spontaneous… You've got uh, all those protections. Yeah, oh, it's very It's cool. not like having a party, so, so you are not like overwhelmed with all of the barriers you have at the beginning, but you learn how to learn to work with the large elephants, uh, even if you are you now smart and agile, so major can you say you're ward? like a
8: fintech university. You're you're kind of helping people go and be ready for work. And the uh,
9: actually it's for money because we are a VC. We put money in your equity. So uh, what we do, we of course want you to be successful, also to one day to to exit together with you, or actually to make money together with you. So it's like university. I would say is only like more for for the reasons you want to educate people or do something else. We want actually to invest in you and help you with our knowledge and experience how to cooperate with a big organizations, which I think right now is the name of the game because banks with PSD2 and all of these APIs we finally start to open for cooperating with the small ventures. Before it was like, either you employ people or you work with the vendors and you don't want to know what it means to be a vendor you're stuck in the, in the middle
8: right so if yeah. you're a small company you don't know how hard it can be to work yeah. with a big bank so actually being the big bank that you can work with is really really cool and we're at the rfi conference here today and we're actually going to be on a panel later talking about apis and psd2 and its impact so what you're saying to me sounds like APIs aren't the fix-all. That actually having an API, having a way to technologically integrate a startup to a bank, doesn't give me everything. That I actually really need somebody that can work with me and help me understand the culture and everything that it takes to really like work with this big behemoth of an organization. Is Think ab-
9: thing about the APIs like it's called digital glue. So, okay, you can glue in the ecosystem. But it doesn't mean that actually combination of what you glue with what will really be a tasty thing. So, so if I glue Lego
8: <laughs> to my face, it's yeah, probably not a, not a good idea. That's
9: <laughs> a good idea. So uh, let's think about the glue in a more positive sense. Of course, right now, there is a third option that didn't exist before. Because uh, you probably meet here a lot of the bankers that have a very robust digital agenda. Mm-hmm. They want to transform. They want to actually to, to match Google's of this world. Yeah. Of course, in the little, uh, uh, field being being banking, the point is like today they only have two ways. Uh, one way is to actually attract the talents to come, get employment within the bank, and then they try to actually onboard the guys. Finally, they learn that onboarding within the culture they have is probably mission impossible. So they put people aside, they create some sort of Indian reserve for them, create a separate world. But whatever wherever they want actually to uh, retransplant the organs which were created there they said wow the 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 organism is just rejecting it so it's very difficult on the other hand they uh, come to the vendors but who are traditional vendors of uh, bankers Uh, big four accentures and ibms of this world they're also not actually the companies right now who are considered to be icons of digital so right now uh, i think that with uh, psd2 and open bank concept right now you have a third way so you at the moment, who can actually create the, the model when you cooperate with 10, 20 people's team that want to have their own startup and not necessarily are looking for implementing the See,
8: I love that. I love that idea that there's a third way, that, that now I don't have to have uh, big old vendors mm-hmm. and like a startup that I can't work with that's outside my walls and I'm scared of. Yeah. What a great way of thinking about it. Yarik, thank you so much you. for being with us today. Yeah,
1: thank you. Well, that's all for now. Thanks to all our guests, and we will see you on the next episode of Fintech Insider.